Well, good to see you guys again. And you too, Tim. Yep, thanks. Okay. All right, I need the affirmation every now and then. Hey, welcome to uh, part three of a five-part series called Tattered Life and Timeless Legacy. And this series is built on the Old Testament character of a man named David. Uh, and David's story, if you know anything about it, is a really a story of paradoxes, a man of great character and a man of great sin who served a God of even greater grace. And that's the short story. Did a lot of great things, did a lot of really bad things, really bad things and had a God who was really great. In week one, we looked at the beginning of David's uh, you know, journey to, to kinghood, and basically looked there that, that a life is best measured by the immeasurables, if you remember that, that God sent the prophet Samuel to Jesse's house of Bethlehem, and David was chosen as the youngest, or the Hebrew word says the smallest of all of the brothers that were chosen. In fact, David's own father didn't even think that he was worth being in the room when Samuel came to the house. That's what his father thought of him, right? And God chose him as king. So again, if you ever felt disenfranchised, not counted for, okay, David's life begins that way. Last week, we looked at a different story, one of the most famous stories in all the Bible, David and Goliath, right? David and Goliath, and this big story, and we talked about the question of what threatens to make little of our faith. What threatens, kind of morning and night, to continue to barrage you with this thought of, yep, God is not as big as you might think he is. This issue is right in front of you. And I was really encouraged. Probably about 50, 60 hands were raised last Sunday, and that was a little bit of a bold step for us as we don't normally hand raise. I mean, that's like against our religion, right? But we, we did that last week, and the, the reason for that was to say, listen, I, I am wrestling with this thing that continues to threaten to make little of my faith, and I don't want my life to be like that. Like, I don't want at the end of my days to look back and say, I just didn't believe God was able to handle this. So we raised our hands and said, you know what, I'm, I'm wrestling with that, and let's walk this journey together. So to me, great moment last week sharing that with you, basically saying, hey, we're human, and let's help continue to walk with one another. Now this week, we're going to look at a different little, little story in the life of David. This one is so small and seemingly innocuous that you might say, why if you're only looking at five scenes in David's life, why choose this one? Last week it was David versus Goliath. This week it's David versus Saul, but not in the way that maybe you might think. This week, and here's, here's the deal, all right? Here's why this matters to me, and I think why this should matter to you. This week is really about the issue of how of the temptation and the challenge to grab a hold of something in life that we shouldn't grab a hold of yet. In other words, to try to manipulate the future by my present action. To not trust that God is going to do what he's going to do in his way, but to manipulate a relationship, a job opportunity, the future, because I'm afraid that I'm going to lose control. And today is going to be looking at what in the world can we learn from David's life of these little moments when we're tempted to grab a hold of our future and essentially say this, this has to go my way. And here's why this matters. Because my concern for you and for me is that when we grab a hold of something that is grabbed a hold of in the wrong way, in the wrong time, if we try to manipulate a future by our action in the present, life ends up slowly and gradually becoming all about me. 
we slowly and gradually begin to make life centered around me, my future, my dreams, my worries, and my anxieties. And here's what you already know, that a life that is all about you is not worth living. A life that is all about me is not enough of a reason to live. It's not enough to invest a future in. My concern for us is that as that we be very careful because there are subtle moments that come in relationship with people, that come in relationship in your business, that come when you're graduating and moving on to something else. There are subtle moments that come when the temptation comes walking right across your path to grab something and to manipulate the future and to hold something of, of your own making rather than waiting on the right timing for God. Now, we're going to talk about what that looked like in the life of David. This is the first story of our three so far in which there's a chink in his armor. Week number one, David did no wrong. He was simply chosen. Week number two, David did no wrong. A man of great courage and boldness of faith coming in. Week number three, welcome to the tattered life of David. A little moment, a little subtle temptation that came right across his path. We're going to see what he did in that process. So in the meantime, while I'm just doing a little more background, I'd like you to turn to one of the Psalms, because this is going to be background for us. If you have a Bible with you, um, go ahead and turn kind of right in the middle of that to Psalm 142. Psalm 142. If you don't own a Bible, there's one in the pew around you, and you can turn uh, to essentially the middle of the Bible and find it right in there. And by the way, if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you this morning in Psalm 142. Now, a little bit of backstory before we read Psalm 142. At this point in our story, just to catch you up, David has killed Goliath, he cut his head off, the Philistines fled, the Israelite army wins, God wins the day, David's name gets raised up, his reputation starts growing, and if you know anything about the story of David and, and Saul, there's a point in the life of David where Saul becomes to be very jealous of him. And here's where Saul's... Um, life begins to fall apart. And I've shared this with many of you personally in different times, that the, the point in which Saul's life begins to fall apart is when he begins comparing himself to somebody else. Because David um, kills Goliath, and so they throw a parade, right? They, like, we won the World Series, let's throw a parade down Main Street, Philadelphia, Broad Street, or let's, let's do that. Here's what they do. They throw a parade, they celebrate, we conquered the giant and the Philistines. And in that moment, there are women who are singing in the streets. And what they sing is, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. That goes well when you're the king and the little shepherd boy you know, next to you who just plays the harp, who you kind of forget his name every now and then. And in that moment, when Saul began comparing himself to the accomplishments of somebody else, his life became all about him and protecting his image. Not that we wrestle with that, but Saul did. All right? That's even free this morning. That's not even the point of the message. I'm just telling you, that's the way Saul's life began to fall apart. After, after that moment, the Spirit of God leaves Saul. He kind of goes crazy. Right? And if you know that backstory, he gets mad at David for no reason in particular. David um, is actually in, in uh, light of slaying Goliath, he gets um, a wife, right? He's married now to the, the king's daughter, to Saul's daughter. Um, he gets a place to live. He has a reputation that's going. He's got a great friendship with Jonathan, um, the son of, of King Saul. There are a lot of good things going for David, and then Saul goes crazy. 
And he, he loses it, and he tries to, to kill David. And he throws a spear at him, if you know the story, and misses, and David runs. And then David and Jonathan have a little bit of a, a game of communication out in the wild, where if I shoot this arrow past you, it means run away, and if I don't, then you're okay, and all that. And so they communicate, and basically Jonathan says, you need to run for your life, my dad wants to kill you. And all of the nation of Israel, the whole army is now commissioned to kill David. So here's David's life now. Just so you know his situation, he is on the run. He has lost his wife. He has lost his job. He has lost his resources, and he has lost his best friend. And the entire army of Israel is chasing him. He's kind of like bin Laden was a few years ago, except that David didn't do anything wrong. We had the ire of an entire nation coming at you, commissioned by King Saul. And David was hiding in similar places that bin Laden was, out in the Middle East, in the, in the caves that are in the crags of all of these rocks, you know, that are this amazing array of, uh, of, of caves and places to hide in and around the Middle East there. And this is David on the run, and he's got nothing. He's got nothing, and he's worn out. And wouldn't it be neat, wouldn't it be neat if we could actually get into the mind of David and find out what he's feeling at the time? And I'm glad you asked. And I'm glad that you're open to Psalm 142. And then one moment, I'm going to go to Psalm 142. There's actually two Psalms that David wrote in the middle of this moment right now where he's running from the king, he's running from his enemies, who should be his friends. He's falsely accused, and he writes two Psalms. Right? One is Psalm 142, another here in Psalm 57. I want to show you Psalm 57 up front, and then we're going to go to Psalm 142. Here's David writing, and we believe right in the middle of this time where he's being chased. And here's what he says. We can get into his mind. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, for in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. In David's mind, there is reason to hide. There is reason to run. There is refuge needed, and it is in the shadow of God's wings. The disaster is coming. He continues to write, I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He's leaning into the character of God, saying, come on, God, you have promised to me. I need you now. Then he writes here in verse 3, He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. Speaking of the Israelite army, God sends his love and his faithfulness. And then he concludes in verse 4 with this, I am in the midst of lions. I lie among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. This is not a picnic in the deserts of Israel. This is, this is a moment in David's life where he is afraid of the future, where he is weary, where things are not going well, and where his timing is not God's timing. This is Psalm 57. He also writes Psalm 142, which you may have open in front of you by now, and here's what he says there, if you follow along there at verse 1. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him. Before him I tell him my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who know my way. In the path where I walk, men have hidden a snare for me. Look to my right and see. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. Now let me ask you, even in light of last week, have you ever been where David is? Have you ever been in that moment where God is not on time for you? 
Have you ever been in that moment where you're saying, God, I am alone, even in, the, even in my own life. I can't even share with my spouse the things that I'm dealing with. I can't even get this out to anybody because there's too much at risk if I get this out. There are people who are, who are after me, who are after my reputation. There's my family dynamic that's going on. I'm telling you, it's crazy, and I don't know what to do with the future, and it looks so bleak. I don't know what to do with my financial future. Have you ever been to that point where you are just weary, and you cry out to God and say, God, I don't know the future, and I don't know what it holds, but can you help me? Can you help? Because here's the thing, that when we are weak and worn out like this, we are the most vulnerable to take things into our own hands. Because in those moments, we feel the most out of control. We can't control our family. We can't control the job. We can't control the money. We can't control the children. We can't control our reputation. We can't control so much, and then an opportunity comes trotting by right in front, and we look and we see, here's a chance to control something. Ah, I'm going to grab it. And sometimes... Sometimes, by doing so, we do the right thing, but in the wrong way and at the wrong time. And here's David's story, because here's where he's feeling completely alone. So check it out. Flip back in your Bible with me, to jumping into his story in the book of 1 Samuel. This is exactly where David finds himself. 1 Samuel chapter 24 and verses 1 to 7 is going to be our our. Our David, uh, our window into the life of David here this morning. Uh, that will be the ninth book in your Bible, uh, right before Second Samuel. You're welcome for that little tip. First Samuel chapter 24, beginning at verse one. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, "David is in the desert of Engedi." And so Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Now, in Gedi, you need to know, is a beautiful oasis with waterfalls, um, little pools of water, lush vegetation in the middle of, if you can picture the Grand Canyon, uh, I've never been to the Grand Canyon, so I'll admit that, but when I see pictures of the Grand Canyon, we got kind of a vast, rocky, craggy area. Imagine a, a lush, like, oasis in the middle of that. In a way, that's kind of what En Gedi is. In the middle of all this desert region, there are these waterfalls and pools and vegetation and animal life and all that going on here. And this is where David has gone. Because Saul took his army from right on top of David about, I don't know, a couple weeks prior to this, and he said, you know, we need to go back because the Philistines are attacking. So the Philistines are attacking, the Israelites push back the Philistines, and then the, the 3,000 chosen men. You need to read 3,000 special forces. That translates into our lingo, okay? These are chosen men, meaning the, the men of valor, the mighty men is what they'll often use in the Old Testament. These are the special forces. This is not, you know, your, uh, your, your privates in the army, which again, no disrespect to that, but these are men who are uniquely trained to get after their mission. 3,000 of them coming after David. That's not going to go well for David ultimately, and he knows that, which is why he wrote Psalm 57, which is why he wrote Psalm 142. Like, I'm in trouble. I mean, I'm alone. There's nowhere to go. I got sharp teeth of men all around me. I got the lines. I'm living in the middle of this. I'm, I'm just a matter of time before I'm gone. And God help me because I'm in trouble. So we got 3,000 of the special forces. They've traveled 30 miles to get to En Gedi. And along the way, you ever been on a long trip? Then have to use the bathroom? 
Okay, the Bible is a very real book. Okay, the Bible is a very real book. You should read it sometime. And it's actually a very real book. And so here's where, where Saul is. Saul is like, hey guys, how much longer? You know, how much longer until we get there? And like, ah, eh, we're almost there. And then he's like, you know, I have to stop and use the bathroom. Okay, the Bible is a very real and honest book. So here we go. Verse 3 of chapter 24. He came to the sheep pens along the way, and a cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Okay, it's our euphemism for, you know, he went to the bathroom. All right. Now, how ironic is this moment? This is so strange. David and his men were far back in the cave. Well, that's awkward. That's really awkward, isn't it? All right. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So, okay, we, we need to be kind of in the moment without being too strange here, all right, and, and awkward ourselves. But we have to understand, this is weird, okay, and this is in the Bible. So David, Saul has got to go. And there's a cave, you know, there's no porta-potties that support a cave, maybe, I don't know, but there you go. He goes in the cave, and David's men are in the far back recesses of it, and they don't see one another. It's too dark in the transition from light to day, and, and uh, excuse me, day to dark. And so they're hiding in the back, and in waltzes the king. Well, how do you know it's the king? Well, I Having not been there, all I can say is it's very difficult to see from dark to light to see the profile of someone walking in, but you can see a robe. And the robe of a king is a unique robe, and it's very um, highly decorated. It would likely have tassels on the very bottom of it that would be woven especially. It would be very recognizable. So at the least, these guys are like, whoa, I can tell the king's presence is coming in. I know he's coming for you. He's right there. And he's going to the bathroom in our cave. He's in a vulnerable position. He's doing number two in the cave. We just need to, that, that, just, just reality. And David's men are like, you know what? Here's your chance. Now, have you ever tried to read the tea leaves from God? Have you ever tried to, to put circumstances together and say, you know what? This is so unlikely that this has to be from God. You ever been there? You ever know people like that? Like, who, are, who are trying to read the present as if we're God, and, and we try to do that, but we're like, it's so unlikely that this has got to be God's doing. And that's exactly what David's men tell him. David, 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 come on. You, you wrote the Psalms, man. You sang them to us. Right, we know what's on your heart. We're living with you. I mean, we're not living high off the hog here, buddy. How odd is this? Of the thousands of caves... Of all the places, not just one of the mighty men comes in here, but the king himself, totally vulnerable. Man, this, you just cried out to God, deliver me. And what does he do? He brings the king right into you, in a vulnerable position. This is God moving. Take it. And remember what he said, and then he quotes in verse 4. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of. We're declaring it. When he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Now, doesn't that seem to all line up? Like, doesn't that seem to be a good idea? Here, here he is. What more do you want? Do you want God to come down and say, David, take Saul now? Because he's not going to do that. So, man, just read the tea leaves and know this is God's work. And here's, here's the problem with that. What the men said, we don't see anywhere in the Bible. There's no record of this quotation anywhere else. When they said, this is what the Lord said, when? It could be that that was spoken to David and it's just not recorded in Scripture. We don't know. But all that I know is this quote does not exist in the Old Testament. I don't know if they're making this up. I don't know what they're doing, but it does not exist in written form. 
and they push David into this moment. And if you're David, and you know that you are worn out, God's timing is not there yet, you are waiting, you feel all alone, and here's your moment, and it comes walking right across, and here's the moment you can take it. And so Saul does something seemingly innocuous, seemingly small and material. He goes up and he cuts off the corner of the robe. What's that about, David? What's that about? Well, here's what that's about. That's a, that's a claim to kingship. And it seems like a small, small peanuts to us. That is, that is a claim to the authority of the king. In that day and age, that corner of the robe or any piece thereof can be used in the absence of the king to signify his authority. So if he can't be there, you can take the robe or some part thereof or some part of his wardrobe, and in that you can represent the authority of the king with what he has and what his clothing would be. And when David walks up and cuts off the corner of the robe, he's saying, I'm invading the authority of the king, and I'm making a claim to this kingship. It is mine. It is actually a very, very aggressive move. It's actually a very forward thing to do, to go after the king's anointed and make a claim, this is going to be mine. It's not just a little shot across the bow. This is a big Deal. This is David saying, here's the opportunity for me to grab my future and control my destiny, and I'm going to take it and do it because I'm worn out. I feel like God is late. He's not coming through when I need him to. And here's an opportunity. It's so unusual. It has to be God, and I'm going to take it. And the subtle temptation comes right across his path. Do it, David. Do it. What else could it be? Do it, take it, and he does. And he goes up and he cuts off the corner of the robe. And look what happens in verse 5. And afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He knew it was wrong. He knew it was dead wrong. He knew it was, he knew it was a claim to authority. And so he said in verse 6, he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David rebuked his men, being a leader, rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. Because once David cuts the robe off there, he's in. He's opening the door for an attack. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. We're going to stop the reading there. What happens at the end of that is that David goes out to Saul and says, Saul, you were in the cave. I didn't kill you. Could have, didn't, just so you know. Don't listen to your people around you. They're telling you lies. I'm not trying to kill you. See, here's your robe. Could have, didn't. Are we good? Saul's like, hey, we're good. I'm sorry. Hey, when you become king, don't kill my family. David's like, sounds good. Saul leaves with his family or with his army. All right, that's the story. That's what happens next. That's my version. All right, that's, that's the, the short, short story. But in the middle of this, David makes this move with this subtle temptation of what's coming right in front of him. And here's the thing, here's the thing with David. He had a reason to be afraid. He had a reason to be offended. He had a reason to want to go after King Saul. He was wronged. We know that. It's not like we can argue, well, you know, David really was, you know, guilty of... He wasn't guilty of anything. And Saul was attacking him wrongly. David was completely in the right. And yet he refused to to attack Saul in that moment. So here, here's the thing. Here's the thing that we all know. It's easy to grab for the right thing in the wrong way at the wrong time. Isn't it? This is the issue of David. It's easy to grab for the right thing, but in the wrong way at the wrong time. 
It's not like what David was grabbing for was wrong. He wanted deliverance. He wanted safety. He wanted protection. He wanted a future. And in that moment, he went after and he grabbed what he could have, and he took it. And later, he was conscience-stricken. He said, this isn't right. It isn't right. It isn't right. Man, I wish I wouldn't have, but I did. And now I need to rebuke my men, tell them to get down, because I made the first step. They're ready to jump. Man, it wasn't right. I shouldn't have done this. And what happened with David is in that moment, and here's what's so important, in that moment, he made life all about him. He made getting his way the driving force behind his decision-making. And he justified his decision-making by saying, I'm weary of this. I want God to provide. Here comes an opportunity. You're right, guys. I'm going to go get him. And he grabbed him. And he forgot in that moment that God had already said clearly in, in both Exodus and Numbers and even what David quoted, he knew you don't lift your hand against God's anointed. You don't do that. And he knew that if he would have been thinking clearly, but he wasn't because he was vulnerable, because he was weak, and because he was worn out. Psalm 142, Psalm 57, we see the mind of David. I'm weary. I'm lonely. Where are you? And he is not in a good position to think clearly about what God's will is. Let me get practical with us for a little bit. There are multi multitude of temptations that walk across our path that make us want to manipulate something about our future. That we wish we could control because we're out of control of so many things. I can't tell you how many, how many men and women who are married who wish that something were different about their spouse. And who, who wish, you know, maybe if I just buy the book and subtly slide it on, the, on his nightstand, maybe he'll become a spiritual leader in our home. You know, what do you think? You know? And maybe if I were to get this for her, do you think maybe she would learn what I really want her to do? Like, what is it that I can control that I can do, that can manipulate him into becoming a spiritual leader in the home? What is it I can do to control, to manipulate her to be less naggy and less on me all the time? What is it that I need to do to kind of get a hold of that future because I want something different? Not just in, in marriages, not just in the struggles that we have. And let me be clear, I am not downing that as a failure I'm acknowledging that as reality and saying, let's normalize our behavior. Let's normalize what we're dealing with. We are sinners married to one another. Right? Welcome to a bunch of failure. Right? Welcome to a bunch of mistakes. Welcome to years and years and years sometimes of incomplete love, of, of unmet expectations in which we're still married, and we have to figure out what in the world does it look like to love and serve well. And when the temptation comes walking by, you know what, I want to control or manipulate a part of the future. What do I do, and how do I know, and this is the really hard question, if I'm honest, this is the really hard question that I wrestled with for a long time on this message in particular. How do I know when I'm manipulating the future or when I'm doing what God wants me to do? How do I know that? 
Because last week it was awesome that David killed Goliath. Way to go, David. You stepped into that. This week, it's like, man, you did something aggressive and that was bad. You know, good David, bad David. What's the deal? Aggressive last week, aggressive this week. Good last week, bad this week. What is the deal? What gives? What's the difference between David and Goliath and David versus Saul? How do I know the difference between when I'm trying to control and manipulate my future, when I'm doing the right thing and stepping into what God wants? It's a hard question. I've wrestled with that very much as I've been preparing this message here. And I want to just share a couple principles with you first. And then I want to share a question. I want to share a directing question that I hope will help direct your thinking and behavior related to this issue, that I hope will bring some clarity. A couple principles first. Number one, God is more patient than we are. I mean, just say that. God is more patient than we are. I want when I'm offended and when, when you bother me or I bother you or you know, whoever bothers you, whatever, I want some layer, a pretty quick resolution to that. Think about David's life for a long time. He's running and running and running. He's running and running and running from Saul and from the army. This is day and night and day and night and months drag on. There's an entire season of David's life where he's running from Saul. And God is not sleeping. Not like God's unaware. I mean, any moment in any day, this could happen. In fact, if it were me, I'm like, hey, God, Saul just threw something at me. Can you deal with that, like, by the morning? I don't really want to go through the desert. I don't want to go through all the running. And God is more patient than we are. David's issue is a personal offense. He's been wronged by Saul. Saul is coming after him, and God does not jump right away immediately and say, you know what, I'm so sorry you've been offended. I'm sorry people have bothered you. I'm sorry that someone thinks you're a loser even though you're not. I mean, I'm really sorry about all that. He does not come out there and with lightning strike down people who think you're terrible. Or even people who are going after you. He just doesn't do that. He's more patient than we are in general. Right? Now, secondly, good friends can give bad advice. Right? Let me just say that. There are people who are well-intentioned who are just dumb. All right, who say things that just are not true, just are not fitting and are not helpful. And in this case, this is what David's men did. And in that little moment, David heard the advice. He was weak, he was vulnerable, and he went on it. In fact, I'll even say this. Good advice isn't always godly advice. And there's a difference between those two, isn't it? This is actually not bad advice. This is good advice if you're looking from a military perspective. This is great advice. In fact, you don't even need advice if you're just simply trying to conquer your enemy. Good grief, your enemy just walked into the cave and is relieving himself. Right? I mean, take it. You would be a fool not to. It's good advice. Take him down. But good advice isn't always godly advice. There's a difference between the two. And good advice, or bad advice, can come from good people and from good friends. People who care about you, but sometimes offer just bad advice. The question becomes, is what they're saying something that I know God wants me to do? Or not? Is it, is it what he wants me to do or not? And let me, let me say this. Um, we are more vulnerable when we're worn out. You know this. You're more vulnerable when you're worn out. When you feel the burden of your marriage continuing to drain on you, when you feel the burden of the uncertainty of your financial future continuing to hit at you, when you are mulling over and over and over and over and over again the things in your mind, and something comes right across, across your path and seems to be the solution, the first thing is I'm going to jump on it, grab it, and go. Because here it is. And how unusual would this be? This has got to be God's plan for me. I'm going to jump and go. Here we go. Because here's relief. The tension is gone, and I can do it. And it was wrong for David to do it. So, so what gives? When we're more vulnerable, we're more vulnerable when we're worn out. And so what gives? How in the world can I know? 
How in the world can I know when, when what I'm doing is grabbing at a future that I shouldn't grab at or whether what I'm doing is aggressive service for God? This is the right thing to do. Now, here's a question. And I'm going to put the question up here and try to explain it because I'm wanting this question to be something that you can actually take home and think about, that, you can, that it can help you guide your behavior as you face all kinds of quick-hitting moments because these temptations come quickly, they come in a flash. They come in a moment sometimes when you're speaking to somebody and, uh, and you have always thought this way about them. You know, you've always been you know, semi-critical of them and the opportunity comes up for you to be kind of sarcastic with them and kind of just drive them down a little bit as you kind of come up. You know. There's moments that pass in life that are quick, quick, quick. Here's a question. Would I act this way if everything were going my way? Would I act this way if everything were going my way? Now, let me explain this. For David, nothing was going his way. In fact, he felt like absolutely nothing was going my way. Nobody likes me. People are trying to kill me. I've lost my wife. I've lost my job. I've lost my resources. I've lost my best friend. I'm in the desert. I've got a bunch of guys I'm living with in a cave. We haven't showered for a long time. I mean, I've got nothing going my way. And when nothing is going your way or my way, I get really weak and vulnerable, and I just want to have something finally go my way. Let me ask you in the story of David, if everything were going David's way, if he had his wife, if he had his job, if he had his resources, if he had his margin, and if he had his balance, and he had an opportunity to make a claim to kingship, would he do it? And I would venture to say no. Because he would know it's the wrong thing to do. But when things are not going our way, we want to take control of anything that we can. Anything that we can that comes along our path. And so, with your relationship in your marriage, if things were great between you and your husband and you still feel that you wish he was more of a spiritual leader or whatever... Would you act the way you're currently acting if he was awesome? Would you act the way that you're currently acting if he loved you fully the way that you want to be loved? And if you knew that God was present with you and heard your cries for more, would you act toward him in the same mannerisms, the same body language, the same service to him if everything was going your way? Men, same question for us with our wives. Would we act the way that we act if everything was going our way? If she wasn't nagging you? If you didn't feel like when I come home, it's always, you know, what about this and what about that? I'm so tired from all my whatabouts at work. I come home and it's what about here at home? It's like, ah. Would you act toward her the same way if everything were already going your way? And here's why I ask that question. Because that question is meant to draw you and me out of a selfish focus. It's meant to draw us out of, this is about me. It's meant to draw us out of and say, what if things actually were going my way? What if I actually believed God was present? What if I believed God was strong? What if I believed people were for me? What would I do? And I'll tell you what you would do. You would live according to your priorities. You would live according to what you believed. You would live according to what at those weekend retreats that you went on in junior high and high school, whatever, that you signed off around the fire and you're like, this is how I always want to live. 
In those greatest moments of your life, you're writing down, here's what I want to do, and you're pumped up and excited because everything in those moments are going your way, and you list a bunch of priorities that you want to do and you want to be all about. And then life gets to you. And here's the question. What would I do, and would I act this way if everything were already going my way? Would I act toward my kids when they irritate me and when they drag our family name through the mud because of their behavior? Would I treat them this way if everything were already going my way? Sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is yes. We would still discipline the children. I would still encourage my spouse this way. But the way in which I would do that will be different because I don't need them to change for me. This question is an attempt to get you and me out of this. And here's my greatest fear for us in this message, is that your life and my life becomes a fight that you have for you in this world. That your life simply becomes, I want things to happen on my timetable, in my way, when I'm offended, when I'm bothered, when my marriage isn't, when my family isn't, when my job isn't, when the money isn't. It isn't right, and I need to get it right my way. And my concern for us in this is that we will grab at things that we shouldn't grab at. And in time, we will slowly be compounding decisions where we just become people who make decisions for our own benefit. Think of it this way. Imagine what would have happened to David if he would have taken his men's advice all the way and killed Saul that day in the cave. Imagine what would have happened to his kingdom. Imagine what would have happened to his legacy. Imagine what would have happened if he would have made his, that moment all about him and he would have done things his way on his time. And you can imagine as well as I can that his kingdom would have been established by the sword and nothing about what we remember about David would be the same. And it's a subtle temptation to grab something that doesn't that shouldn't be happening in this time or in this way. It's not wrong, just not the right time or not the right way yet. God is more patient than we are. He's more patient than we are. That irritates me sometimes. If I'm honest with you, that bothers me. Good friends can give bad advice. You know that. You know that's true. And here's David. Looking at this moment, and in walks the king, and his friends are like, this has got to be your chance. And finally David does it, and he says, you know what, I was wrong. Now, I don't know what David would have done, but if he would have asked the question, what would I do if everything was going my way already? In other words, if I really believe that God is for me, if I really believe that God is in control, this is about him, not about me, what would I do? I can almost guarantee you, he would not do what he did. So as you walk, as you step forward, here's my hope for you. As you ask this question, if things are already going my way, what would I do? That your attitude, your vision, your direction within your marriage, within, with your children, in your business, continues to be lifted away from where you're offended and where life disappoints you and gets lifted out to, man, I'm going to believe God is for me. I'm going to believe in the people around me. And how can I serve? Because life isn't just about me. How would I act? In what way would I move if I believed that things were already moving in this direction. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this little story in the life of David that is seemingly small and trivial and yet represents moments in our lives that we can relate to, where we want to grab at things that we are not supposed to grab at yet, where we want to take control 
of things that are not ours to take control of yet. Or we want to move where you haven't moved yet. Our cause is just. We are rightly offended. We're rightly bothered by things around us that should be better, and rightly so. But the way and the time in which we act, I acknowledge, can be manipulative at times. It can be controlling. Because we're impatient with you. So Father, I pray for us that we wouldn't give up what's right, wouldn't settle in to mediocrity and middle living. We would still hold to what's right. But we would also trust in you, in your way, in your time, in your work, to know that you're a God who does indeed lead, who does indeed provide ways and means for redemption and deliverance to happen. Sometimes it's years and years and years and years later than we would ever want and in a different manner than we would ever want. But Father, I pray that you'd keep us from trying to control and manipulate. Keep us from making life all about us that we can serve you with greater clarity and greater love. Father, we pray that indeed you would lead the way and we can walk in it. We pray this in Jesus' name.